Consider yourselves lucky that you came to the second service today, um, or lucky, lazy, same thing. I'm just kidding. No, um, I did not know during the first service that I was going to have to walk out to such trendy music, and it made me feel really awkward and overwhelmed, and so it was a false start that first hour, but I'm glad that you guys are here. Um, so good morning. My name is Nick Allen. I'm the family pastor here at Rolling Hills, um, and, and it's a pleasure to be here uh, today at our Franklin campus as we continue in this series called uh, Brand New. Um, Jeff Simmons, our, our pastor, is, um, as many of you know, um, at the bedside of his father, um, waiting on what seems very near um, in terms of his passing. And so um, as we continue in our worship here, um, we know that he's also engaged in something that's brand new for him. Um, and we celebrate just the son that he is and the way he's rallying around his parents. And so our prayers are with him today. Um, and I know that you join me in that prayer. And so thank you for that. Um, thank you also for the opportunity for me to be in this spot, to get to talk about what's next for us as we examine the idea of what it means for believers to be brand new. I, I get thrilled about a new year and all of the new possibilities that it brings. Um, but doesn't it seem, as we age, um, let me look to a corner of a room that resonates with what I'm saying. Yes, you over there. As we age, doesn't it, doesn't it feel like time passes more quickly? Yeah, you get that. And the truth is, every year has the same number of days. Well, with the exception of this year being leap year, which is kind of a... That aside, every year has the same number of, of days, of weeks, of minutes, of hours. And the truth is that it's really just our perspective about the pace of time that changes it all. So this month we kick off a brand new series called Brand New. Um, congratulations to the creative team that thought of that one. Um, and our prayer is that... That evermore, um, the idea of the promise of 2 Corinthians 5.17 would continue to be fulfilled in our lives. Uh, that theme verse reads that if anyone is in Christ, for those of us who are found in Christ today, we are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And it's not just some tweaked out version of some old recipe that comes or some old order we place online that comes in the mail. We try it on to see if it fits. It's not the idea that we just try on something new. The idea is that we are made into something new. The word new in 2 Corinthians 5.17 is the Greek word kainos, and it bears the connotation of this, new substance, a substance that's freshly made, unprecedented, novel, uncommon, unheard of before. And, and I don't think that you and I quite understand that, that it's not just God doing something in us that he's done a thousand times before. It's God doing something brand new, holy and fresh and completely different, unprecedented, uncommon, so that the people we become really are different than the people that we were. The God of this universe doesn't want to just refinish our lives. As if he can just take some sandpaper and strip off the old and then stain us into something brand new. God doesn't want to refurbish our old life. He wants to completely gut it and replace it with something completely new. I also love doing the word study on 
the word come in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's the Greek word genomai, and it literally means to become. You take that definition and you add the idea of coming into existence, to begin to be, to receive your being. That's what God wants to do in our lives. Something new, something incredible, something that we can't ask for, something that we can't even comprehend, something that once we see it, we recognize it because we know it's different. God is hard at work. And I think that that's a really funny phrase, and I don't like saying it very much because it implies, you know, the idea that God is hard at work implies that something might be too hard for him, and that's not the case at all. But to be completely clear, we want to illustrate the fact that what God is doing would be completely hard for us. In fact, it would be impossible for us. But to recognize the fact that the creator of this universe never tires, never sleeps, never stops, always working, always moving, always planning, always doing something in our lives, and just like time passes constantly, the same as it did the time before. It's just our perspective that waxes and wanes over the flow of time. God is always moving. God is always active. God is always present. God is always willing and acting. It's just our perspective and our ability to recognize what God is doing that waxes and wanes over time. And so today, just like the, the song that we sang, our, our ultimate prayer is that we would become more aware of his presence and more aware of his power, and more aware of the ways that he's working in our lives so that we can submit to them and to celebrate them and to even understand them because he's busy working in the lives of believers, taking away something that is old and creating what is brand new. That word, that phrase, brand new, is kind of a conundrum because it's as if the word new isn't enough on its own to stand by itself. It needs the brand modifier for us to understand that something that's brand new is better than something that's just plain old new. And I did an etymology study this week to figure out why do we even say that as a society? Why is brand new somehow a phrase that's common and recognizable and understandable to us? And it comes uh, from Germany, like lots of good things, okay? So it comes, it's a German etymology, and the idea of a brand is that something is branded. You know, family crest, hot iron, branded on a fresh piece of cattle bottom so that you know who it belongs to. That word brand literally means fresh from fire. And oh, we say to the God of the universe, may we live our lives, may we operate today as if we are brand new, freshly forged from the fire of the light of Christ. Last week, Pastor Jeff launched this series with the first and most important understanding of what it means to be brand new. <coughs> it's the idea that you are redeemed by Christ. That's ultimately the definition of a Christian, redeemed by Christ. More often than not, the way that we define the word Christian is a follower of Jesus, and that's certainly true, but I have to wonder if that definition leaves something out that's kind of necessarily true. Because when we say that a Christian is a follower of Christ, that's the definition of what we do. When ultimately being a Christian is being redeemed by Christ, indicating what he has done there, there is a statement that we have to recognize and that we have to understand and that we have to submit ourselves to. And it's the fact that we can only be a follower of Jesus if we have been redeemed by Jesus. And that only comes through the grace that was spent for us on the cross of Christ and imparted to us by the forgiveness of God so that Christ's imputed righteousness is given to us to replace our lives of sin. 
So to the redeemed, people who have been forgiven, people who call themselves Christians, what's the next step in this brand new year? So I'm the family pastor. I work with our teams of student and children and preschool ministries. And I, um, on some level, I do take credit for the fun that we had this morning with Chase and Jen on stage, although it makes me feel awkward to know that we gave away a new car um, and then I didn't get it. It's okay. Um, I spend my days, my hours, my weeks, my months, the bulk of my work life um, focusing on how we're discipling kids and training volunteers and creating safe and nurturing ministry environments, growing families and impacting parents. I love a good study and a good statistic and sometimes I tweet them or note them or send them out to you and you were gracious enough to like it and tell me to send more and so I will keep doing that. George Barna, great guy. Um, head of the Barna Institute, um, promotes incredible studies, many of them related to church ministry and family life. And years ago, he set out to write a book um, called How to Train Children into Be Spiritual Champions, and it was later retitled Revolutionary Parenting. And, and in the middle of that authorship, we learned that George Barna actually stopped in the middle of it, feeling completely overwhelmed about the reality of what it would take to raise spiritual champions, and really his own ability and credibility to do that in his own home with his own kids, based on research and being convicted in the calling to write it, he finished the book anyway, and he explains to parents just some measures of what it takes to raise a spiritual champion. It's a great book. We should read it. Okay, so to understand what it takes to raise a spiritual champion, we have to ultimately understand what we mean when we define a spiritual champion. He labels it this way. Spiritual champion is one who has embraced Jesus Christ as both Savior and Lord. That's the redeemed by Christ part. And the next phrase is accepts the Bible as truth and their guide for life, seeking to live in obedience to the Bible's principles. That's where we land in focus today. The rest of the definition is as follows. Lives in search of ways to deepen their relationship with God, lives in noticeably different way than the average churchgoer, and possesses a biblical worldview that shapes decision making. So being redeemed by Christ is accepting Jesus Christ as both Savior and Lord. Covered last week, but if anybody wants to talk about that today, we'd be happy to. This week, we land on parts two and three. Accepting the Bible as truth and a guide for life, seeking to live in obedience to the Bible's principles. And ultimately, the bottom line answer for the entire day is that none of us can do that. None of us can accept this as a truth and a guide for life. None of us can seek to obey the principles that are found within it. None of us can even understand what it says were it not for the power offered to us by the Holy Spirit of God fueling what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. How many of you guys read FAQs on websites? Okay, three of you know what that is. Awesome. Okay, so frequently asked questions help you determine the nature of what a product is or what your research is. And so you go to the FAQ sites of lots of different websites, and it attempts to give you the most commonly asked questions regarding what that website's content is. So I decided to go this week to a few websites and look at their FAQ pages and figure out just how common these questions might be. I went to Instagram. A lot of you have those accounts. We see it. Okay, so the first FAQ on the Instagram page is, you ready? What is Instagram? If the most frequently asked question is, what are you? Then you're gonna have a real hard time building a client base. Apparently not, a lot of people use it. Then I decided that I would just research common household items and Tide, the detergent, laundry detergent came up. Do you know what the number one frequently asked question is on the Tide website? Where can I buy Tide? <laughs> And I read that and thought to myself, how many people don't know where they can buy Tide? 
you can buy Tide almost everywhere. In fact, the list of places that you can't buy Tide is probably shorter than the list of places that you can. Has anyone ever asked that before? Where to get this? I have no idea why that would appear on a list of frequently asked questions regarding the product, but apparently people have long since been wanting to know where in the world, it sounds so great, where can I find this? <laughs> Lots of places, folks. Lots of places. Long before there was a World Wide Web to display frequently asked questions, I grew up in a very prominent um, Protestant uh, denomination, evangelical tradition, and we had weekly our own version of an FAQ. Um, it was on the back of a response card. Every week there was a chance to respond to what God might be saying to you in the context of the worship experience. We called it an invitation or a response. Um, and the four most common responses um, were written on the back of the card. The first was salvation, um, that a common response to hearing the word of God might be to surrender yourself to it through the repenting of your sins and the declaration of faith in Jesus Christ to become a Christian. That's salvation. Great. Um, the next one was baptism, um, that believers who had um, repented of their sin and uh, been imparted the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ in their life to become a follower of him would then step foot into some water to tell the story of what Jesus did and indicate that they were in fact a Christ follower. Um, the next one was assurance. And that spoke to the fact that so many of us ebb and flow in our lives of truly believing and understanding that God could love us that much, that he would die for us. And that the sin that we commit in life is enough to keep us away from God on our own merit, but not so big that he couldn't die from it on his merit. And so we need those moments of assurance in life. And finally, rededication was listed as an opportunity for a believer to recommit to the lifestyle that they wanted to live in accordance with God's word. There was a fifth line that just said other, and you had to fill that in on your own, so apparently it wasn't that common. So those four common responses became the frequently used phrases that people would use to respond to God's word. Ultimately, because believers are fueled by the spirit of God's word to accept it as true and obey it in life, because it's the Holy Spirit that prompts that kind of response, we have to know who the Holy Spirit is and just how does he fuel our lives it's easy to find a lot of remarks about the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture. And the ones that we glean to today are found in the book of John, chapter 16. It's Jesus Christ talking because we know that these first four books of the New Testament, and you're turning there with me now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the story of Christ on earth. But this isn't the first time that Christ came on the scene because John begins his book in chapter 1 by explaining to us that the Word in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Christ has been present for forever. And this is the moment where he's explaining to his followers yet again the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives who also would be present with them and has been present since the beginning forever because that Holy Spirit is part and parcel to the triune God. And he says in these words, explaining to them that he's going to leave and that the Spirit's going to come, this is what it would mean for them. John chapter 16, starting with verse 7, Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, good thing. I do like it when Jesus tells the truth. Okay, so nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, and he'll keep talking, but you cannot bear them now. 
When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit is going to come. Who is this Holy Spirit? First, he is both a personal and present member of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Throughout the whole of Scripture, God is present as a creator, a redeemer, and a faith-filled sustainer. He's the sovereign God, the sacrificial Son, and the Holy Spirit moving all in one. And according to Jesus, it was to our advantage that he leave so that the helper, the comforter, the Bible says paraclete, which means advocate, someone that would defend us before God, would come in his place. Now, how many of us would ever consider the idea of Jesus leaving an advantage? None of us. His disciples were confused at this moment too. The important deal was this. Christ came to accomplish the work of salvation. The Spirit would come to do the work of sanctification. And it's both that we need so desperately. Francis Chan wrote in a book called Forgotten God about how we have neglected the person and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He asks this question. It's right for us to ask too. Why would we ever need a comforter when our lives are already so comfortable? Ultimately, it's because Christ never intended for us to be this comfortable. And while comfort may be common in our hemisphere of Christianity, it was never intended to be so. We're supposed to be kainos, new, different, unprecedented. Chan wrote, the truth is that the spirit of the living God is guaranteed to ask you to go somewhere or do something you wouldn't normally want or choose to do. The Spirit will lead you to the way of the cross as he led Jesus to the cross. And that is definitely not a safe or pretty or comfortable place to be. The Holy Spirit of God will mold you into the person you were made to be. This often incredibly painful process strips you of selfishness, pride, and fear. Embracing that kind of change can only be fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You know, the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to never leave us nor forsake us. Because of the Holy Spirit, we're not alone. And that is comforting. Uncomfortable is the fact that he has other work in our lives too, outlined in John 16, to guide us in the truth, sometimes difficult truth, and to convict us of our sin inviting us to know Christ and ultimately sanctifying us in Jesus. John 16 gives us a clear outline of what the Holy Spirit's job description is. And the first part is that he would convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Conviction is the Holy Spirit's role in the world. It says when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's John 16, 8. The Holy Spirit will offer conviction of sin. Sometimes we think that's our job. I've said it before kind of often, and I'll say it again because I need to hear it often. The role of the Holy Spirit will now be played by Nick Allen, said God never. <laughs> it's not his desire or his design that I would take on the role of the Holy Spirit in the world to convict the world of the sins that they commit. 
The role of convicting the world of sin belongs exclusively and rightfully to the Holy Spirit. He convicts us of our sin when we live in disbelief so that we can turn to Christ. He convicts us regarding righteousness because Jesus literally goes before us and he goes to God for us and it's his imputed, given over to us righteousness that makes us holy and never our own. And he convicts us concerning judgment because the enemy in this world and the sins of this world will be judged. Sin will stand on trial. Side note, if we ever grow doubtful of what it means to serve a God who is as much wrath as he is love, we need to thank him for two really big things. The first is that his wrath is poured out on sin because we need that to be the case in this world. And two, that his son became the recipient of that wrath because if not, it would be you and I. The Holy Spirit serves to convict the world regarding their sin and regarding Christ's righteousness and regarding the judgment of the enemy. He does other stuff. The Holy Spirit exists to guide believers into truth and to declare things to us that are yet to come. The role of the Holy Spirit is to take this word and to explain to us what it means and to explain to us what it means in such a way that we will be inspired to follow it. So many times in his discourses, Jesus said these words, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the hearing of God's word wasn't just letting it go in one ear and out the other. It was literally hearing it and obeying it. The mark of the spiritual champion, the committed disciple of Jesus Christ, the follower of this Lord is that we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, but that we also accept this word as true. We operate with this as our guide for life, and we seek to submit ourselves to the authority of Christ's words within this. And we are able to do that only by the power of the Holy Holy Spirit who guides us to understand this truth and who helps us declare what this means for us and for all time. When I commit myself to Christ, I'm not just committing myself to Christ for today and the part of life that I do understand. I'm committing myself to Christ for all eternity and the parts that are yet to come. And the role of the Holy Spirit is to explain to me what all that means. It says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And he doesn't speak with his own authority, but he, whatever he hears he speaks, and he will declare those things to us that are yet to come. He guides us to know and understand what this means and to apply it to our lives, and finally, he glorifies Jesus. So if his role in the world is to convict regarding sin, and his role in the church is to guide believers, his role in my life and in your life and the heart of each and every individual believer is that he glorifies Jesus. And in glorifying Jesus, he points us to Christ. It says in verse 14, he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit always, always, always points us to a declaration of Jesus Christ in our life. So does God the Father for that matter. Later in this same section of discourse in chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus prays that the Father would glorify the Son. The work of God in our lives, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, is always that Jesus Christ would be glorified. Everything about this word, everything about the way Christ made this world, everything about the Holy Spirit's activity in it is to point us to Jesus. That's why we're always a little bit cautious when we hear celebrities get up on a stage and they're thanking God for the award that they just won because we have to wonder what God are they thanking because if the God that they're thanking doesn't point them to the declaration that Jesus Christ is the son of that God, then it's not the same one. Because we know that the presence and the activity of God in a person's life will always, always, always point to Jesus Christ. Always. It's the only declaration to which the Spirit leads. 
He leads us to declare our faith in Christ. I hope that you've come to a moment where you have been led by the power of the Holy Spirit to glorify Jesus and to declare who he is. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and we need him to. The Holy Spirit guides us to understand this word and oh, how we need him to. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus as the Son of God. And oh, how we need him to show us how to do that as well. As much as we ever understand the Holy Spirit of God to be some still, quiet, small, directive voice inside our head and our heart, we have to, we have to also understand that he is first and foremost the presence of the living God in our life. The Holy Spirit is actually God. And he is to be feared, he is to be worshipped, he is to be praised, he is to be obeyed. And we will know and recognize his presence in our life because he points us to Jesus. And when we are believers in Jesus, we recognize the fact that our relationship with God started as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. Because he convicts the world regarding sin, it's actually the Holy Spirit who invites us to know Christ. John 6, Jesus spoke these words, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Regarding salvation, Jesus often gave the illustration of being born again to explain what it meant. He said in John chapter 3, verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Paul explained what that kind of water birth was in, in Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He said, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. How did he appear? He appeared in Emmanuel as a little bitty baby born and placed in a manger, come to save the world from sin, given the name God with us. That's how he appeared. And when God appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, because we can't do works on our own righteousness, but according to his own mercy, his own loving kindness, his own giving us that which we do not deserve and withholding from us that which we do deserve. How did he do it? By the washing of regeneration and the renewal being made brand new, forged by the fire of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and that in and of itself is the design on the reply card of the invitation that you and I have received to know and follow God. Every time I get to lead a, a baptism class for kids, we call it the baptism and belief class, parents attend with their children, and I get a chance to look at parents and to explain how to know when your child is ready to make that salvation decision permanent in their life and to understand what it really means to become a follower of Christ and to be redeemed by him. It's the difference between wants and needs. And, and we comprehend that in other areas of our life because we, want, we understand that a new Lego set is a want, but that a winter coat is probably a need, and we get the difference there. But with regard to salvation, we have to understand it here too. You see, a child can want to become a Christian because their parents are Christians, because a sibling was recently saved and baptized, or because by the nature of the way the parents are raising the child, they just understand that it's good and right to follow Jesus. Those are great wants. 
But a child only understands their need to become a Christian when they come face to face with the harsh reality of their sin and they realize that that sin separates them from a holy God. In fact, their sin is offensive to a holy God and only until that sin is forgiven can they truly have a relationship with Christ. There is a difference between wanting to follow Jesus and knowing the need that you have in your life for the forgiveness of Christ. And a child can come to that recognition on their own level to understand that sin separates us from God. And because we are sinners, we need the forgiveness that only comes through the blood of Jesus. We get to evaluate and discern and understand when a child is ready. And it's always based on their understanding of that need. Only the Spirit leads us to repentance. Our flesh is no help at all. Our flesh, the human sinful nature side of me, never leads us to the need for repentance. Only the Spirit. He reveals to us our sin and invites us to experience the forgiveness that comes from Jesus. The Holy Spirit extends that invitation in our lives. The Holy Spirit also provides the power to declare our faith in Jesus. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. One of the biggest challenges, I outlined it before, one of the biggest challenges to the Christian faith is the assurance that we have. It's the reason why that word made it to the list of the frequently used responses when it came to a Christian worship experience, that we seek from God the assurance of our salvation so that we don't have to doubt what will happen in the end, and we don't have to doubt the security of our presence in God. Doubting salvation is ultimately a tool that the enemy uses in the life of a believer, and it's a tool of both faith and pride. Faith, because... It doubts the ability of a holy God to save sinners like us in the first place. And pride, because it places a self as a key player in the salvation transaction. Assuming that there is something that you and I can do to lose salvation implies that there must have been something we should have done to earn salvation. And no one can declare that Jesus is Lord apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit in his or her life. It's the only declaration towards which the Spirit leads. He leads us to declare faith in Jesus. But not just saving faith. Paul didn't write, no one can say Jesus is Savior except in the Spirit. Paul didn't write, no one can say Jesus was Creator except in the Spirit. No one, he didn't write, no one can say Jesus is God's son except in the Spirit. No, he didn't write, no one can say Jesus lived a sinless life except in the Holy Spirit. He wrote, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And that means Lord and ruler over all kinds of faith. You see, declaring that Jesus is Lord means submitting to his authority. Declaring that Jesus is Lord means surrendering to his leadership. It means that you not only declare him Lord over everything, but you declare yourself his subject and his subject alone. That kind of whole body submission is the antithesis of our human sinful nature. Only the Holy Spirit of God can lead us to make that kind of declaration and to live out that kind of declaration in obedience to his word. When you and I find ourselves in a position to need assurance of our salvation, if we've been able to declare Jesus as Lord of our life, it's not because we need another layer of certainty that Christ's work was enough for us. Ultimately, we're not doubting the power of Christ to save, but we're recognizing the fact that we as humans have been resisting the work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify. That's the third part of the Holy Spirit work that we identify today. 
the Holy Spirit provides us power to declare our faith, and he also sanctifies us to follow Christ. Paul wrote that that was his purpose in Romans 15, 16. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Christ prayed that for us in John chapter 17 as he continued his prayer. He prayed it for us in verse 17. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word, God, is truth. The word sanctify, definitely a church word. We don't use it for other meanings in other arenas of life. You're not going to hear sanctify around the watercolor at work. You're not going to hear sanctify on the soccer field with your kids. I mean, it's just a church word, plain and simple. And a lot of people might want to alienate themselves from that word and choose an easier definition, one that's more easily comprehended. But John Piper warns us against that and says, hey, don't abandon that word. It's a special word. Why is it special? Because of what it means. It's the combination of two Latin words. The first is sanctus, and that means holy. And the next is ficar, and that means to make. And at the bottom level, the definition that we understand of the word sanctification in our lives is that the Holy Spirit of God exists to make us holy, to make us holy before a holy God. And it's the work that he does in us. It's what it means to be brand new. It's what it means to be newly forged by fire. It, it, what it, it's what it means to be born again into something uncommon, unprecedented, something never before seen. See, holiness means to be set apart reserved for a special purpose of God. Humbly put, sanctification is like the dishwasher in your home used to clean up those dishes so that you can be used for God's good purpose later in his good pleasure without all the baked on crust from yesterday's dinner. Classier? John Piper wrote that sanctification happens when the gospel is preached and the Holy Spirit is poured out and they meet with power in the human heart. So this year we want to be brand new. We want to be holy, set apart, righteous before God. We want to be conformed to the image of his son, that's Romans 8. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that's Romans 12. Where providentially that word renewing is the same as what we read in Titus chapter 3, anakinosis. It's a noun, I think. Actually, it's a gerund. It's a verb that functions as a noun because you put the ing on the end, but those are hard to figure out because although it has the ing, so do so many other present participles, and it's really hard because you've got to translate it from the Greek language first, and they don't have ing's in the Greek language. It's really, you've got to get all that stuff out, but you can have a Coke. We want to make it a little simple today. That word, anakinosis, literally means made new. That the regeneration being made holy and the renewal being made new only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And for it to happen for us, it has to be fueled by Him. There is a response for us to make today. And for some of you, that first response is giving in to the Holy Spirit's invitation to be born again, to become a follower of Jesus Christ faced with the harsh reality of your sin, you determine that you're going to repent of that, tell God that you're sorry, and invite Christ to be Lord of your life. And you make that declaration in response to that invitation by the power of the Holy Spirit. This may be the day that we call salvation for you. You will forevermore be known as redeemed by Christ. For others of us, believers in this room, being brand new 
means submitting to the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work in our lives. It, it means the desire to go deeper. And the great thing about desiring to go deeper with God is that the Holy Spirit's response to us is always an affirmative one. In fact, it is impossible for us to desire to go deeper with God and Him be the reason that doesn't work out. It's impossible for us to want more of God in our lives and Him be the reason we don't get it. It's impossible for us to truly desire to see more Holy Spirit presence and power in our lives and Him be the reason that it doesn't happen. The Holy Spirit never orchestrates a delay in our obedience. That's always us. The Holy Spirit of God never orchestrates a resistance to this word. He is always present, active, glorifying Jesus, making it possible for us to repent of our sin, be invited to know Christ, and declare our faith in Jesus as Lord. You know, delayed obedience is really just a nice way of saying disobedience. So for example, if you know that the Holy Spirit of God is calling you to take your next step as a believer in baptism, then it's disobedience to wait. His plan is not to walk you through some eight-year process before you take that literal dip. He's ready now. And the same is true of any facet of our Christian walk. The same is true for missions. He's not orchestrating some waitful moment for you to take that step. It's true for giving. It's true for leading. It's true for serving. If we're not ready to go deeper in any of those areas of our walk with Jesus Christ, it's never the fault of the Holy Spirit. It's most likely our comfort level that makes us wait. And if that's the case, we must be reminded Jesus never calls us to be comfortable, but he did send to us a comforter to make us new, to guide us in all truth, to renew in us something uncommon and something different and something only the power of God could do through accepting and submitting to his word. In what way does the Holy Spirit invite you to respond to God today? I'd like to invite the men in our room who are um, ASICs leaders in our church um, to move around the sides of this auditorium and to be available. There is something significant about the idea of a physical response to a holy God inviting you to go deeper with him. And so you may be a believer today who desires to go deeper in such a way that warrants prayer. And I invite you to find one of the men around this room and just say, let's pray. Pray for me in this. Pray for me in this step. Pray for me in this manner. Pray for me in the way that God is calling to me respond and to submit today. It's going to be uncomfortable. But God has sent to you a comforter. And so today, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fall. I pray that the power of your presence would be so real and so active and so persistent in our midst. 
I pray that you would do the work of renewing us to be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn of our faith, and that, Holy Spirit, you would reign supreme in your ability to make in us a declaration of faith in Christ. Jesus, I pray that you would be glorified and that by the power of your Spirit, you would do the work of drawing us closer to you. More importantly than any of this, God, I pray that through the power of your Spirit, You'd let us see it. Let us see the way that you're working, God. And not just see it, but respond to it. It's in the holy and precious name of Jesus that we pray. And by the power of the Holy Spirit that we make our response today.